0: instruction on spiritual gifts. <clears throat> really it's a section that is larger than chapter 12. It's really extends through chapter 14. Pretty extensive uh, area of focus for the Apostle Paul. But let me just read uh, our focal uh, verses to you this morning. We'll start in verse 7 and we'll read through verse 11. This is kind of where we've been for a while as we've been working through this listing of spiritual gifts that the Apostle Paul provides for us here. So read with me if you have your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> Excuse me. "...to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit." To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Obviously we've been talking about this at length where the Apostle Paul is providing for us what we are referencing as an illustrative list of gifts, it's certainly not uh, exhaustive. It certainly doesn't uh, even contain every uh, named gift that you find in Scripture. But even in the context of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, he is seeking to illustrate a much broader and I would say a much more in, a significant or important point for believers in the body of Christ and believers who gather in local churches Namely, that every person who is a believer has been given a or some spiritual gifts, some special enablements, sovereignly by the Spirit of God according to his purpose. But more broadly, he is making the point that these gifts are of varying types. They are apportioned variously. And they are used or deployed in a variety of ministry contexts with a variety of effects. So there's this sort of this balanced sort of message or or focal point in this section where the Apostle Paul is speaking about the varied nature of spiritual gifts in all those facets, but also the uniform nature of them in that it's one and the same Spirit who gives these gifts according to his purpose, for the ultimate objective of building up the body of Christ, for the common good, he says there in verse 7 as we read. Uh, and so this, this primary point is sort of thrust through this entire section, and really you could say it carries all the way through verses, or excuse me, chapters tw- uh, 13 and 14 as well. It's, it's, it, it carries forward. We'll see that much more clearly even as we move forward in this particular chapter, in chapter 12, as he begins to employ the familiar body metaphor to describe the people of God who assemble in the church. <clears throat> but today, we arrive, we've been working our way through this list, and we arrive at the last two gifts that the Apostle Paul mentions here. In chapter 12, we find them there at the end of verse 10. You have various kinds of tongues and then the inter- the interpretation of tongues. This, this phrase, various kinds of tongues, it's literally... The word genos or genos, which is the term that can mean nation or people or class or kind. Another way to think of it is entities united by common traits. So that's why the translation in the ESV is various kinds, it's things that are assembled by common traits. And then the other term that's used there for various kinds of tongues is the term glossa or tongue or language. It is a reference to either, in Scripture, it's a reference to either the physical bodily instrument that facilitates speech, the instrument in our mouths, the tongue, or it's a metaphor of the tongue to represent speech, or it's actually a reference to a language, an actual known discernible language. Those are the ways that you see this term used in Scripture. Uh, Anthony Hokama says this tongue speaking or glossolalia is a spontaneous utterance of sounds in a language the speaker has never learned and does not even understand. This term is sort of the technical term that many commentators use to refer to this referenced gift of tongue speaking. They call it glossolalia from this Greek term glossa which means tongue or language. And then you have the interpretation of tongues, which uses the same term glossa for tongues, but this term for interpretation is the word hermeneia or hermeneia. And it, it references interpretation or translation. It's the word from which we get the term hermeneutics, which is the study or the art or the science or the principles that we deploy for biblical interpretation. That's, that's the area of hermeneutics. When you hear people throw around the fancy word, well, you know, that's that's a really good hermeneutic, or they're not using very good hermeneutics. What they're talking about is they're they're not using, or they are using either one, sound principles for biblical interpretation. So this is the term from which we get that English term, hermeneutics, this term that's used for the interpretation of tongues. And as we've already seen, and we'll continue to see as I've already kind of alluded to, as we move through this entire study, all the way through chapter 14... This particular manifestation of the gifts of tongues, it looms very large in Paul's mind as a matter of warranting significant attention for him, both in terms of instruction and really a significant amount of correction amongst these first century believers in Corinth. He he focuses in on these last two gifts, in particular this last one, in significant measure and really with a significant degree of concern being expressed and correction being put forward to the Corinthians. When you get to chapter 13, the famous love passage, you know, the, chapter 13, as you know, the Apostle Paul had in mind weddings, right? You, knew, you know that when he was thinking of this, he was thinking, man, what would make a great passage to, for people to read at weddings? No, that's not it at all, although it is a great passage for weddings. It's a great passage on love. It's a beautiful uh, section of Scripture. But in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I am using the gift of tongues in a way that is not of the Spirit, that is not of God, in other words, it's absent love in this particular context... It is nothing but an annoying irritant. That's all it is. It is useless, in other words. In chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, he says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now we're going to get into chapter 14 and really unpack this because it has a lot to do with the assembly and the manifestation of gifts in the gathered assembly in worship. So we're going to deal very extensively with that once we get there. But just take note of the Apostle Paul's correction here. Clearly the Apostle Paul is very concerned not just with teaching about this particular gift in terms of how it should be defined or how it should be understood or how do you know if you have it or where is it to be manifest. He's primarily concerned with the improper desire for and the improper use of this particular gift. Possibly even, likely even, the counterfeit of this kind of gift in the life of the church. So there's this strong caution, and again, he lands back where he's been and what we've been talking about in verse 12 here of chapter 14. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Not yourselves, in other words. It's not about you, he would say. or he would probably say. And then in chapter 14, verses 18 to 19, listen to what he says about himself. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the Apostle Paul framing up this whole matter in ways that are intended to reflect something of a profound concern that he is carrying here, and something of an intent to correct a wrong in the life of the church. That is unmistakable. And what is very disheartening, when you go to various people who teach about tongues in ways that we'll be talking about as we go through our time today and even more extensively in, in the weeks ahead, what is very disheartening is that many, many, many quote-unquote spiritual leaders and teachers will go to this particular section in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and they will use it as a way to instruct in the use of the gift of tongues, for example, in ways that do not tie in to the broader context, which is looming very large in this passage, in this whole section. And that is one of correction. In other words, the tendency that you get, just in the few passages that I read, and we'll talk again, like I said, much more at length when we get to chapter 14, but the tendency for the Apostle Paul is, I'd rather you not speak anything of the sort if you're not building up the church. I'd rather you just keep silent if you're not building up the church. church. So much so that I'll point the finger back at myself. I legitimately have been given the gift or the manifestation of tongues in the ministry as an apostle, but I'd rather speak intelligible words to build up the church than to speak a bunch of words that no one understands. This is the the tone and tenor of this instruction. And to use this section to sort of propagate and piece together some doctrine that sort of fits someone's experience or someone's preferred spirituality is really heartbreaking, deceptive, manipulative and utterly irresponsible for anyone who teaches the word of God. So there's this corrective going on. <clears throat> now, in in his book entitled Strange Fire by John MacArthur, he provides a very helpful and I would say very fascinating sort of historical sketch from the turn of the 20th century that I, I want to just read, I read an excerpt from you to kind of introduce, further introduce our, our discussion this morning. <clears throat> he says, It was the dawn of the 20th century in the early morning hours of New Year's Day 1901. A group of Bible school students had come together hours earlier for a New Year's Eve prayer service. But even though it was long past midnight, they were still there, earnestly seeking to experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. All of them desperately hoped for something amazing. Over the previous weeks, the students had been intently studying portions of the book of Acts. They were particularly interested in what the apostolic record taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and experienced that in keeping with their wesleyan holiness background they believe took place subsequent to conversion their study eventually centered on the miraculous phenomenon of speaking in tongues which the students concluded was the true sign of spirit baptism they observed how the apostles had spoken in tongues on the day of pentecost as well as at cornelius' as well as cornelius in acts chapter 10 and John the Baptist's former disciples in Acts chapter 19. And they wondered, if tongue speaking was a sign of the Spirit's presence in apostolic times, maybe the same was still true at the outset of the 20th century. By the time they gathered for prayer service on New Year's Eve, they had all arrived at the same two conclusions. Namely, speaking in tongues was the sign of Spirit baptism, and the gift of tongues was still available for them to experience. So, with heartfelt determination, they pleaded with God to be baptized by His Spirit. Their teacher, a Methodist holiness minister named Charles Fox Parham, had encouraged them along these lines. And now, they were eager to experience the Spirit's power firsthand. Sometime in those early morning hours, something extraordinary happened. One of the students, a young woman named Agnes Osmond asked her teacher to lay hands on her and pray that she would receive the Holy Spirit. What happened next would change the course of modern church history. As Charles Parham later recounted, I laid my hands upon her and prayed. I had scarcely completed three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon her. A halo seemed to surround her head and face, and she began speaking the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. When she tried to write in English to tell us of her experience, she wrote the Chinese, end quote. Osman's experience would soon be shared by both her teacher and her fellow students. During the series of revival meetings that followed, more than 20 different languages were, were reportedly spoken through the spirit's supernatural power, including Russian, Japanese, Bulgarian, French, Bohemian, Norwegian, Hungarian, Italian, and Spanish. Charles Parham himself claimed to speak in Swedish as well as other languages. Such was the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement. A Pentecostal historian Vincent Sinan explains, quote, "Osman's experience thus became the prototype experience for all the millions of Pentecostals who were to follow, end quote." Within a decade, more than 50,000 people would experience the same phenomenon as Agnes Osman. Enthusiasm continued to mushroom, especially on the West Coast, where another of Parham's students, a man named William J. Seymour, similarly promoted speaking in tongues as the sign of spirit baptism. No one could have imagined how a simple prayer meeting at a small Bible school in Kansas would change the world. Just over a century later, the Pentecostal and Neo-Pentecostal movements would grow into, to include more than a half a billion half a billion, with a B, charismatic adherents. In spite of the size and scope and influence of what we would consider the contemporary charismatic movement, prior to the first half of the 20th century, in other words, prior to this period, prior to this this moment and what happened uh, soon thereafter, the belief that speaking in tongues was... And is the essential sign that verifies and validates true baptism in the Holy Spirit was virtually non-existent. Non-existent. Gordon Fee, who, by the way, is a charismatic theologian, but a good one. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a sound one. He's an honest, charismatic theologian. I don't agree with him on every front, but he does good exegesis. He works hard at at being faithful to the text. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says this about this, this passage, this part of the passage, various kinds of tongues. He says this, this is obviously the controversial gift, both then and in later times. The literature here is immense, especially after the outbreak of this phenomenon that I just read about in the traditional churches in the late 1950s. Before 1960, there were basically two studies in the scholarly journals devoted solely to tongues. After the quote-unquote renewal movement of the 1960s, nearly every major journal had at least one article. Anthony Hokoma, in his book, What About Tongue Speaking? This book was published in 1966, by the way. He wrote this. Although tongue-speaking on a large scale did not begin until the rise of Pentecostalism in 1906, the phenomenon did appear previous to that date, both within and without the Christian church. Within the church, however, until the beginning of the 20th century, tongue-speaking was encountered only occasionally among minority groups. And when he says minority groups, he's not talking about like ethnic minority groups. He's just talking about small groups of people. He goes on, though. He says, Tongue-speaking has broken out among high church Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, and Reformed. As glossolalia, this technical term for tongue speaking, spilled over from storefront churches and Pentecostal tabernacles to Gothic sanctuaries and suburban living rooms, news wires began to hum, typewriters clicked, and presses whirled. Almost overnight, speaking in tongues became front page news. End quote. Interesting. So this thing of speaking in tongues as being the evidence of true spiritual baptism is a relatively new phenomenon in the history of the church, particularly in this country. It just so happens that it's a phenomenon that exploded in appeal and adoption. And so because of its explosion in appeal and adoption... It has the sense in our day and time, like, this is is something legitimate to really contend with. Like, what should we think about this? But I give you this to say, listen, this is recent. This is relatively recent in the broad span of church history as a phenomenon. This kind of attention given to what has been described as a new kind of Pentecost only makes sense when you consider what actually happened at the original Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. I mean, if this this event that took place in 1901 and then began to sort of create a movement of sorts, sort of a new understanding of spirit baptism and the evidence thereof, and a new developing understanding of the use of the spiritual gift of tongue speaking in the church, if this in fact was some form of New Pentecost, that would certainly warrant a lot of typewriters hammering out articles. And I use typewriters because that was an article he wrote in 1966. People are going, for those of you who are younger, typewriters are these things. <laughs> I'm kidding. But you, you can imagine. I mean, if, I mean if, this is, if this is some kind of New Pentecost thing that was happening, I mean, and, and, and by the way, the fact that it, it exploded in terms of appeal and adoption and it crossed over all kinds of denominations It warrants attention, for sure. So just the fact that it gained that kind of attention, it kind of makes sense. I mean, it's not like it's a surprise that it would gain that kind of attention if it had that kind of mass development and broad appeal and adoption. So that should compel us to consider what transpired in 1901 and subsequently In light of what transpired in the first century, in Acts chapter 2, at the first Pentecost. And as we have been endeavoring to do consistently, as we've looked at these various gifts, is simply to say, what are the gifts in light of the teachings of Scripture? And then we'll work our way out from there. So... Let's think about this from the standpoint of what we read of in Acts chapter 2. Here's the scene in Acts chapter 2. When you arrive at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you have, the setting of that is that just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus had instructed his disciples in Acts chapter 1 to wait in Jerusalem. And he says in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, Luke tells us, and while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to him, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, they returned to Jerusalem, and they waited. That's where we are. Acts chapter 2. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So that's the initial scene of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, before he ascended, told his disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait there until this happens because this will empower you to then be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when you read this narrative, clearly this was a singular historic event. I don't know how you can read this and say, let's do it again. This is what needs to happen over and over and over again. We need to have Pentecost every Sunday when we meet. Remember what I said previously. One of the great alarms I have about some of the approaches that people take to the appropriate use of some of the more um, sign or miraculous exhibitionary kinds of gifts is that when you look at those gifts and their manifestation in Scripture and the purposeful intent of them as they are used in Scripture, and then you think about what's being taught and assumed in our modern era, it naturally diminishes the significance of them by virtue of making them commonplace. This was, this was an event like no other. If, if Luke wasn't clear enough, I don't know what we need to hear or read to see that. There was something as though a rushing wind. There was a sound. There was a noise. Remember, they're gathered in an upper room of a house. And and the the, the actual physical experience of all of this, the physical manifestation, the the, the geologic, the atmospheric manifestation of all this brought people to the scene. It wasn't some kind of isolated, small kind of thing. It was massive in terms of its impact and scale. Clearly, it was also a sovereign manifestation of the Spirit. Notice what he says there at the very beginning. When the days of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. In other words, they were waiting. I mean, they, you know, they, I'm sure that they were, they were teaching and discussing and studying, and they were waiting with anticipation, and even look preceding to this, and they had to choose a, a replacement for Judas, and, and so they chose Matthias. I mean, there was things going on, but the text just tells us that they were, they were in one place. They were just together in one place, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. In other words, this sovereign move of the Spirit on this gathered assembly came. It wasn't as though there was some kind of sort of special fervent prayer that was being done or some kind of incantation that had to be done or some kind of specific knowledge about how we need to sort of partner with God to bring this about. It was just the sovereign, empowering coming of the Holy Spirit amongst those that were gathered there. It was a sovereign manifestation of the Spirit. And clearly, this was characterized, as I've already kind of alluded to, by what Scripture refers to as signs and wonders for the purpose of providing powerful attestation to the authentic work of God. God. That's what happened. The sound, the rushing winds, and then you have these people who are speaking in known languages. It got many, many people's attention. It was an attestation of a work of God that was upon them. It was a sign and wonder kind of event and a sign and wonder manifestation of tongue speaking in this context. And clearly... The manifestation of tongue speaking here was a miraculous enablement in which, as I've already mentioned, actual, known, and identified languages and dialects were being spoken by those who did not understand the language they were speaking, but they were being understood by those who spoke those languages. It's so specific that he recounts all the different language groups that were there and hearing The words, the wonders, the works of God being communicated in their own tongue, in their own language. Very specific in its detail. Which is very characteristic of Luke as a historian. And clearly, this was the kind of manifestation that was sought after and claimed to have occurred back in 1901. When this new Pentecostal movement began. This is, this is what they were claiming had happened. You remember this woman, Agnes Osman, specifically was on the record as, as claiming that she was speaking what language? Chinese. Not just speaking it, but writing it. Writing the Chinese language. So, begs the question, When we look at what happened at Pentecost and we do at least some initial comparison, which we'll do quite a bit more as we move forward, some initial comparison of what happened in 1901, are we seeing the same thing? Did we witness the same thing? Let me take you back to the little historical sketch in Strange Fire. Charles Parham and Agnes Osmond and other students never actually experienced the supernatural sign they were seeking. They were convinced speaking in tongues entailed the miraculous ability to speak in authentic foreign languages, just as the apostles did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Which, by the way, I commend them for that. I mean, at least they they were seeking to have their understanding of speaking in tongues equate with the speaking in tongues that was manifest initially by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. At least there was that. I I commend them for that. That was the gift they they so desperately desired. The gift they experienced, however, consisted of nothing more than nonsensical gibberish. This reality became painfully obvious when Parham insisted that Pentecostal missionaries could go to foreign lands without first going to language school. So convinced were they in this being a new Pentecostal outpouring of the gift of tongues, meaning languages, that they believed that they could send missionaries to the mission field without them learning the native language of the land to which they were going. He, Parham, Parham, boasted to the Topeka State Journal, quote, the Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study them in schools, end quote. Several weeks later, he told the Kansas City Times, quote, a part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power, end quote. In spite of Parham's self-confident sounding guarantees, his missionary strategy backfired rather badly. Jack Hayford and David Moore, charismatic authors by the way, acknowledged the wholesale failure of Parham's expectations. They said, quote, sadly, the idea of xenoglossolaic, that's just actual language, tongues, True language tongues? Foreign languages? The idea of xenoglossolaic tongues would later prove an embarrassing failure as Pentecostal workers went off to mission fields with their gift of tongues and found their hearers did not understand them. Robert Mapes Anderson, another writer on this matter, adds this. S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India, expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue, and found that by their own admission, in no single instance have they been able to do so. As these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were compelled to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. Now this sort of catches us up to today, in a sense. What we are finding today in this matter of tongue speaking is still in many quarters, most quarters I would say, in sort of the broad sweep of what you would might characterize as just charismatic theology or charismatic doctrine or charismatic teaching, is that... The gift of tongues, the manifestation of tongue speaking, is in fact an evidence of a second baptism, a unique or discreet baptism of the Spirit, a unique empowering, you might say, of the Spirit, a unique blessing of the Holy Spirit. So the evidence or the sign of that happening is this ability, this capacity of the utterance of some tongue that you don't understand. What has been developed, though, since really this period of time when it was very explicitly understood to be a, an actual ability to speak in a foreign language, a special gifting, which, is, which, is, which equates to what we saw in Acts chapter 2 and in following you know, instances in the early church, what has developed is what is more considered to be a s- sort of a spiritual, indistinct, personal sort of prayer language. This this kind of general understanding of tongue speaking. I listened to a, a, a seminar. Uh, the things that I do for you. Um, I listened to a seminar um, on on. Uh, gifts of the Spirit, and in particular, um, the gift of tongue speaking. And uh, this particular um, pastor, I assume, yeah, pastor, uh, was, I, I mean, listen, uh, he was seeking, I think, to be as faithful as he could, given his, some of his presuppositions, to teaching people as best he can from the Scriptures about the gift of speaking in tongues, um, and and you know, uh, seemed very sincere in, in, in all of it. So, this is not some kind of you know, personal lambast of an individual who's you know I I don't know his heart. I'm sure, se- seems like a you know a, a, a man who loves the Lord. Um, of course, I don't know him. I mean, it's a YouTube video, so take it for what it's worth. Um, But he identified four different types of speaking in tongues. And he used various verses from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 and 14 to create this four-type category, categorization of tongue speaking. Unfortunately, his hermeneutics was woefully inadequate and very much oriented around proof texting. Taking a verse and saying, this is that. So, when you go, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you look at verse 14, He's dealing with this matter of speaking unintelligibly in the assembly and the, the absence of any value to build up the body of Christ when that occurs. And so he says in chapter, we'll just start back in verse 10. We've already read some of this. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none of them without meaning. Or excuse me, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, I would would say that given the broader context of what the, the Apostle Paul is teaching here, I do not believe that the Apostle Paul is meaning to indicate that being eager for manifestations of the Spirit is a positive thing. I I don't believe that he is saying that as a positive commendation of the Corinthians. Being eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Because they were eager for manifestations of what they identified as the Spirit, but that were self-promoting, that built them up, that gave evidence of what some commentators would call their overrealized eschatology, meaning that they had already arrived; that the, 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 the kingdom of God was here and now, and we are in the kingdom of God here and now, in it's full fledged way. And so we are now reigning as kings. You remember back in in chapters earlier where he says, you know, already you are kings, already you reign. So so I believe that this this eager this eagerness for manifestations is not necessarily a commendation on the part of the Apostle Paul. It's more of like a, a statement of concern that that's a wrong motivation. But then he says, therefore, in verse 13, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfaithful. Now I want to stop right there. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, and my mind is unfruitful. This is the, one of the verses that this particular teacher pulled out to, to justify, or I guess to explain, the nature of a private spiritual prayer language. That there is a way in which your spirit prays, but your mind is not engaged. Your mind is not being fruitful. And the Apostle Paul is simply laying out that dichotomy in the text. He says in verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. So to create a false dichotomy that somehow the Apostle Paul is endorsing a form of tongue speaking that is totally spiritual and therefore justifiably unintelligible versus speaking in an utterance that is understandable with my mind to create that dichotomy ignores what he says here in this next verse because what the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you need to, yeah, speak with your spirit but also your mind. There's not this, you don't break these things apart. So what has become this manifestation of tongue speaking in our modern era and in common, what you might call charismatic theological practice, and parlance is very much oriented toward a private manifestation, a private spiritual language that has to be drawn out from you. It has to be, you have to learn to utter these things, and then it will just, you just, in a sense, you can be instructed to completely disengage your mind and allow, quote-unquote, the spirit to just compel your tongue and your vocal cords. I mean, this particular seminar that I watched got technical in its description of what you must do to to begin to speak in this spiritual, heavenly language. One of the rationales that was given, or one of the benefits, I should say, that was given uh, for the, the this, this manner of speaking in tongues in, in ways that are undiscernible and, and do not translate into any known English language, but it's a spiritual language. It's basically it, it's basically, um, it's basically in, in the context of spiritual warfare, where believers are by the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking to angels. And commanding them in ways that they don't even know, but the spirit does to engage in various points of spiritual warfare, Now I, I want to just make sure you understand the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this was a, this was a, uh, a, a Bible seminar. This was not a, um, a, you know, a healing, sort of ecstatic experience kind of service. This was very academic. it was very sort of uh, structured in its approach, and its presentation. But when he would try to explain, like, what's the purpose or the rationale, he would go so far off script in terms of sound biblical doctrine and hermeneutics that it was very hard to to give the gentleman the benefit of the doubt. His reference point, again, was or one of his reference points was 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, that I've already referenced, where there is such a thing as tongues of men and of angels. Well, the problem with that is the Apostle Paul is referencing that to say, if I do this without love, I'm, I, it's, it's irritant, it's not fruitful, it's not productive. So that's what I mean by kind of pulling and piecing together passages and verses of Scripture and kind of making them mean something that they clearly are not intended to mean based upon just a plain reading of the text. All that to say, uh, this, matter of, this does raise the question for us, I believe, a fair question. So what are we dealing with when it comes to our understanding of being baptized in the Spirit? I mean is there something that you might be missing? You know maybe you're part of the way there but there's there's a, there's some, there's a blessing there's a, a second blessing there's there's more of the spirit or there's a special empowering that could be yours and could be yours to be used for fruitful or even more fruitful ministry in the body of Christ. Or I would say even more importantly for a believer is for us to understand like Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Have I, have I really received what I'm supposed to receive from God? Is there something that I'm completely resistant to? Have I grown up in a particular tradition? Or have I been listening to this teaching by Richard and I'm like totally turned off to something that the Spirit really wants to, a work of the Spirit that he really wants to do in my life? This matter of understanding the nature of spirit baptism is of paramount doctrinal importance for the believer, because if you think about what the purpose or excuse me what the function of the spirit is in the life of the believer, it has to do significantly with our our sanctification, our minds being renewed in the Word, the Word being given to us by the spirit, and the spirit within us giving the ability as Paul says to Rightly ascertain or appraise spiritual truths that are given to us in spiritual words so that we can live by the truth and be sanctified in the truth and have our minds renewed in the truth. I mean, for us to understand the nature of the Spirit's work in our lives in its fullness is of paramount importance, not just so that we can come together in an assembly and utter something that might be unintelligible but might have spiritual benefit or that we can go to a foreign land and be used in some miraculous way to communicate in a language of the native tongue there. The point is, what about our just day-to-day sanctification as the Spirit does His work in the heart and life and mind of the believer? We need to know these things. So, when we gather next time, we're going to talk about that until until then, you guys will just have to live without that knowledge altogether, because I, I know that I know that you know nothing until I tell you right that's how you all function yes <laughs> yeah yeah so this is a this is a challenging uh this is a challenging in a sense it's a challenging discussion for us. Because there are many, 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 many otherwise very faithful followers of Christ who either grew up in a particular tradition or have had certain experiences in the context of worship or some kind of Bible study scenario or whatever, and their their interpretation, their understanding of that experience has come through the lens of principally charismatic theology, a charismatic understanding of some of these salient passages and so they're they're operating according to that that understanding and and yet they're otherwise faithful they love the lord they're serving they're gracious they're 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 humble they're kind they're evangelistic so i want to make sure that as we talk about these things that we understand that we're just trying to learn and be faithful to the text of scripture and we definitely do not want to allow ourselves to begin to categorize people or groups of people into some kind of camp, uh, that would be, that would be s- sinful for us to do that. We need to be faithful in our, in our fellowship with those who we differ with, seeking to be like the Bereans and take everyone to the scriptures to see if these things are so. And We also got to be careful that we don't sort of allow our minds to be framed up by all the excesses that are out there and then put everybody into some big bucket of just wackadoodles. Okay? So just another kind of uh, caution to us as we continue to try to walk through this faithfully. But the bottom line is, is that I'll just tell you this spirit baptism and what took place in the subsequent accounts and acts that we're going to look at uh, next time uh, were have distinct purpose and they don't represent what should be a normative understanding of baptism of the spirit in the life of the believer. So, all right, let's pray.